Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. When your sales organization is in true startup mode, chances are your sellers are doing just about everything. They prospect, they demo, they negotiate, they close. Hell, they might even be doing some support. Whatever it takes, all hands on deck, right? Then as your hypergrowth company scales up, you can start to specialize different aspects of your sales motion and bring in specialists to complement your sellers and ultimately accelerate your deals. One of those specialist teams your company might decide to invest in is a solutions consulting team. Whether you call them solutions consultants, sales engineers, or some other combination of the two, their role is meant to not only demo and explain the technical aspects of your company's product, but also to serve as a trusted advisor for the customer throughout the sale. Now, I know all of this because I learned it from today's guest, Josh Perk. Josh is the Senior Director of Solutions Consulting at Drift. During his three plus years at the company, Josh has scaled the SC team from two people to 20 and created a culture where every rep wants someone like Josh as a valued member of their opportunity team. In our conversation, Josh and I talk about where SCs come from, how to measure the effectiveness of a growing SC team, and what he means when he says he hires on a spectrum from big S to big E for his team. If you're thinking about starting an SC team at your company or you already have one and you aren't quite sure how to articulate its value, this episode will offer you the blueprint that you need. But first, I asked Josh to take me back to when he first arrived at Drift in 2018 and what the catalyst was for why he needed to build out the SC function in the first place. So it feels a long time ago, although it was only three years ago, but you nailed it. So when I first came over to Drift, the, the idea of a sales engineering team, which is what we called ourselves then, we're, we're solutions consultants now, but one in the same, it existed. So I was blessed enough that I didn't have to convince people to build the function, but it, it existed in the sense of one other guy. Um, <laughs> and, and so for me, I was the first SE that came over that had actually been a sales engineer before. The other guy that was already here was a true engineer. And so the way that we thought about the SE team was different, but it was it was really helpful of having someone really technically smart and me a little bit more on like the, the managerial side. Um, the thing that that was really sort of that waking moment of like, we have to do this. We need to invest way more into this is when when Drift started to make this shift from, hey, we're not going to just be transactional anymore, where people are going to show up with their credit card and buy some software, we're really going to move to a platform. And so what was what was most important was not the fact that like, okay, we're suddenly calling ourselves a platform, bring on the SEs. What was really important was the fact that we changed our selling motion. We said, we're going to actually not just go in and sell chatbots or sell a piece of SaaS. We're going to actually understand digital transformation and the way that data flows between marketing automation systems and CRMs. And all of a sudden it became a much bigger, loftier sell. And, and that's where you kind of have to, you know, bless your salespeople's hearts, but you, you can't, you can't expect them to be able to, <laughs> to handle the commercials while also being able to go super deep into that technical stuff. And so when you talk about going deeper into the technical sale, right? Like that to me would be probably the most obvious Thing if I were yeah. looking at an organization and trying to figure out whether or not I needed to have a solutions consulting team, like, okay, yeah. technical product, I need somebody technical on the call. What yeah. are some of the other triggers for people who maybe are at that inflection point in their company of reasons why a team like that might need to be created or need to get bigger? 
Yeah, so I, I actually don't think that a technical product is the motivation for having an SC team anymore. Okay. It used to be it. For, for like okay. 20 years, that was why you needed an SC, right? You said, wow, this is kind of complex. There's like some, some smart things we need to talk about. Let's go hire some smart people. Um, and, and that's why the original SC function was like truly engineers, right? Just like mm. people that we took from the engineering team and said, like, can you help salespeople um, explain this a little bit better? And and the reason I think that's not the the motivation for SE or SE teams anymore is because of the way that that the buying culture is shifting. And and what I mean by that, I, I think the best way to explain it is to look at you know what Drift was born out of, right? We said, hey, forms work, but they work because they have to work, right? Like people have to fill out a form. And so it was a necessary evil. That's kind of what I'm starting to see in the way that prospects are buying. They're saying like salespeople work. But they're kind of a necessary evil. Like, I, I just hmm. kind of need to go through them to talk to the person that actually knows what they're talking about. Not that salespeople don't know what they're talking about, but this deep level of understanding the product. And so I, I think SEs don't just fill a technical role anymore. I think they fill a trust role of someone that says, like, hey, we're on the sales team, but I, I actually don't truly care about my sales rep hitting their number. I care about making sure that, you know, I, I have some self-esteem here that, that puts you in the right product. And I also feel like in that shift, there's almost this perception too that creates that trust, which is like your team or people like your team are not necessarily perceived there to to only be there to close the deal. They are yes. perceived there to add that value to explain the how and the why of what you're looking at, as opposed to just like, okay, we're at stage one of the sales process now, time to move on to stage two. Yes. I, I've never been a salesperson before, so I can't tell whether this joke is accurate or not. But I always tell people there's only one thing worse than an AE getting clawback, and that's an SE selling the wrong solution. Like Just like the the embarrassment that comes with a customer <laughs> saying, like, you told me this and it doesn't do that is way I'd rather they take some of my paycheck back than have to go have that conversation with a customer. In case you couldn't tell, Josh takes a lot of pride in the work that his team does and the role that they play in our sales motion here at Drift. And he's right. As the buying culture continues to evolve, the roles of these trusted advisors only become more important. So let's say you're like Josh and you think your company needs to make an investment in a solutions consulting team. How do you do that? When I asked Josh, he told me he couldn't just jump ahead to posting a bunch of job postings. In fact, he told me that I was one of the hurdles he needed to clear first. Before the people was was getting the permission to get the people, which mm. was not easy. Um, and, and and actually, this is why I feel like a relationship with operations was so important, um, because, you know, operations historically are the folks that say, like, give me data, give me data that shows that this is like the right investment. And then if it you know, if the Boolean equals true, then we'll give it to you. Um, Sean, you remember that? That was like not a thing. Like when it was like one or two of us, like I had no data. Um, it, it was, there was so much relationship that I had to build with you to just say like, hey, like we we think that me being here is helpful. Um, and we had anecdotal data, but we didn't know how that was going to scale. And the reason that I needed your trust so much in sort of building out this team was because even if I had given you data, the way that I was operating as a team of one, two, or three, 
is not the way that an SE team is going to operate at 20. So the data I would have given you was false, right? Because mm. me coming in as a transactional SE saying, here's how the integration works, great, I'll never talk to you again, is much different than the role I play now as, a, as an SE and leading my team of 20, which is way more relationship focused. So um, it's a horrible answer, but getting trust to get people is really, really important before you have the data to show that it's worth it. Totally agree with you. And so once you've built that trust and you've got like the, you know, check mark, like, okay, go yeah. Josh, go, go forth and, and multiply and, and, and bring some people back. Like yeah. where do, where do SCs even come from? Right? Like <laughs> we, we've had people on this show who talk about how, you know, in ops, they, some of them, you know, fall into it. Some of them come from a finance background. We've had some people who were in sales and then made the switch to ops, which I think is a rare one. Like what are the yeah. paths to becoming an SC? That's what's, that's what's so interesting uh, about this career field is, is the answer to where or how did you first become an SC is different for everyone that I interview, hmm. uh, in part because it's a newer career field. Although I did interview someone the other day that said they majored in it, which kind of made me feel Whoa. like I'm starting to get old. <laughs> yep. It's something you can go to school for now. That's awesome. Um, it is super cool that it's starting to take off and we've got some great communities in this in this space that have really made it more popular. Um, but before people were able to major in it, usually there were two different ways that folks came into being SEs. They were they were either career SEs, which means that they you know probably started somewhere else in the org, whether they were an engineer or they were a salesperson that, that realized they're a little bit more technical than their their colleagues and they kind of stumbled into it. And then the other way. Uh, that we find people are, are more like industry practitioners. So folks that were users of your software or in the space that you're selling to and maybe need to learn some more of the sales or technical skills, but really understand the space uh, that you're in. And to be honest, in order to make my team successful, I needed to have both of those. So, so mm. I go out and purposely hire folks that have no SE experience, but really understand our market. And then I have the opposite who can lead my team a little bit better and show those newer SEs what it's like to be an SE because they're more career focused. That's really interesting. And so I would imagine that in the team makeup, right? Like you've got those pros and strengths and, and sometimes those things can balance each other out. But I would yeah. also imagine that that does that have an impact on the way you actually staff those people to deals? Because I could see yes. there, it's not, it's not everybody entering a deal is created equal at that point. Right. Yeah, it, it does. So when, when we're looking at sort of the talent pool on an SC team, I, I no longer think about them as industry practitioners versus existing SCs. Okay. Instead, I put all of those people on a, on sort of a spectrum of what I would call like big S or big E. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty popular analogy in the, the sales engineering community, but to, to break it down is, you know, if you're a big S, that means that your, your first instinct is being a little bit more of a salesperson. You kind of understand the business needs and you're maybe a little bit of a smooth talker and you're like socializing. If you're a big E, perhaps you don't have all of those skill sets, but you're really good at understanding the technology and the product. And you can go toe to toe with like a CTO or a CEO mm. and, and some of those big deals. Um, and that's why it's so important to have both of them because there's no right or wrong answer. It's going to totally depend on the AE that you're matching them with and sometimes even the deal that you're in. And so at, at Drift, we do our best to have AE to SE ratios or relationships that they're, they're all consistent. But we find that there are times where we say like, hey, even though you constantly work with this person, this 
they now need to go talk security and get super deep into GDPR and our APIs with Salesforce. We're going to actually take you off of it and go have you know our big ESE handle that part of the deal and then bring you back in to close it. What I find really interesting here is that Josh is not just blindly assigning resources to deals because solutions consultant A always works with sales rep B. In fact, he's plotting his team members on that spectrum that he mentioned, big S for sales to big E for engineer, and then assigning them based on fit. This sounded to me like it made a lot of sense from an individual deal perspective, but I also wondered if it complicated things a bit when trying to build a system around SC capacity or AE to SC ratios, or just a simple relationship between an SC and their AE. Is there a target ratio or setup that we should be aiming for when building out one of these teams? Turns out there's some art and some science behind the whole thing. So there's there's two parts to like the for for the operations folks in the room. There's like a mathematical equation that you okay. guys will care more about, and then there's more of like the emotional equation that the people <laughs> bringing this problem to you will care about. Okay. So the the mathematical equation is like you sell your product for a certain amount of money, and your SE brings a measurable amount of value, and it's usually in three different forms. It's either in um, you know, speed to, to a deal. So, so deal velocity is something that we measure. Did it close faster because of the SE? Um, did the, the deal close larger? So ASP that a, a SE brings. And then there's the binary. Did we get a technical win that we would not have gotten without an SE? So those are the three sort of measurements that you can, you can pursue. And then it's just straight math, right, of, of how, how many of those do we need to offset the cost of the team? And can we just continue to kind of pour gasoline on this perfect ratio? Um, so so that's, the, that's the scientific answer. The, the more emotional answer is there, there are also bandwidth constraints. And like maybe, maybe that formula doesn't balance out perfectly. If you have a low ASP and a really high uh, touch deal, like that, that ratio is not going to work super well. And you can't do what I did for my first year at Drift, which is have a 1 to 90 ratio of ABs <laughs> to, to Why? SEs. That sounds fine. <laughs> super sustainable. Yeah, yeah, very um, normal. <laughs> so, so somewhere in there, you, you kind of have to figure out like what's the magic sauce for our team. And so long story short, for, for us at Drift and what's pretty popular across most like enterprise SaaS companies is, you know, one to one or one to three ish in your enterprise markets, depending on your ASP and then in your mid market in your, your growth or whatever you sort of call your, your commercial business, you're looking anywhere from, you know, one to five to one to 10, if you're in like a super velocity motion. Got it. Got it. And so my second question about kind of like the staffing conversation and the bandwidth thing kind of underlines this is... There's going to be a moment, and I think this is true of ops people too, where you got to say no, right? Or you've got people yeah. on your team who have to be self-aware enough to know where they are on that big S to big E spectrum. And yeah. they have to say, I'm actually not the right person here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How are you managing those conversations both within your own team in terms of coaching the folks in your team, but then also with that crucial partnership that you have with sales where they want somebody no matter what? Right. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that bandwidth might not exist. Like, is that something that's coming up for you? It comes up a ton and it, it's not unlike what I imagine the relationship between operations and their, 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 your sales teams are in the sense of, you know, you, you kind of support these folks. It's important that you maintain a healthy relationship with them. You don't want them to dislike you, but at the same time you have a job to do. Um, and so what, what we see happen in, in the SE world is, is one of two things. So one is, your SE 
is so beloved and so good at closing deals that an AE wants to use them for everything, right? Oh, come mm -hmm. join my discovery, do more than just listen, actually run it for me, or, you know, <laughs> hey, we're going to kind of avoid all of operations process for closing a deal. And we're just going to have you go, you know, go show them whatever they want. And there's those sorts of things where, where I, I really rely on my SE team because they're the ones that are they're in the weeds kind of experiencing that. I, I like for them to be able to instill that trust of like, hey, we're, we're well-paid professionals. We're both here to get a job done right. I need you to use me in the best way so that, you know, in the future, when your colleague wants to misuse me, I'm available for, for <laughs> you, right? It, it kind of goes full, yeah. full way around. And then there's the, the opposite side of... Uh, you go back to like the challenger sale, kind of old school. There, there are folks on on sales teams that like just don't want to work with other people, right? They don't want to don't want to use SEs. They think that they're great at demoing it, and it's really important for an AE to build a relationship with that, uh, or sorry, an SE to build a relationship with that AE and say like, hey, you are good. Like I, I appreciate that. My my job is to not re replace you. My job is to not put risk in your deal by adding someone else that you know isn't in your control. My job is to be an expert at this one thing, which is demonstrating the product and answering solution questions so that you can focus on what you do best, which is the commercials and making sure that this is a good fit on, on that end of the business. In addition to starting to build relationships with its internal customers, Josh has also now clarified exactly how the business will measure and find value in his team's work. He told us three specific metrics, deal velocity, deal size, and the presence of a technical win. If you're starting a team like Josh's, these are super simple and straightforward measurements that you can be tracking in your opportunity process. We're going to revisit those a little bit more later in the show. Don't worry. I also really liked how Josh described the guardrails around the work that his team does. He said that they're there to demo the product and answer solution questions. Meanwhile, they're freeing up the salesperson to do what they do best, sell. Landing on those guardrails, though, isn't always so straightforward. Anytime you introduce a new role, chances are that role is taking some responsibility away from somebody else's, even if the new role is better suited for that work. So I asked Josh, what were those early days like of defining the split in responsibilities or overlaps in some cases between the solution consultants and the sales team? So, so I've got an unpopular opinion, I think, when it comes to Great. this subject. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily recommend what I'm about to say for most teams. I'll follow it up with what I do recommend for most okay. teams. But, but I knew really early on when I came into Drift to establish the team that the best way for me to get trust in you as, as my operations leader and, and get that investment from my now boss, um, our CRO, was to kind of be the person that didn't say no. And so so I kind of made that personal decision of like, I'm gonna be a little bit tired this year. I'm gonna work a little extra hard and, and probably do things that I should be saying no to because I wanted to end that first year and have nobody in the sales work say like, there's nothing Josh can't do. Uh, that is not sustainable after you start hiring people. Like if you want to make that personal choice yeah. and sort of build that that personal brand, absolutely do it. And I think it's I think it's been rewarding for me. I, I think now I've established a sort of trust and brand where people say like he can he can help us. Um, but now that I have a team of twenty, I can't let them operate that way, right? There's there's it's going to turn into burnout. It's going to turn into blurry lines. And and for for SEs, once you do something once, you set the expectation that you're happy yeah. to do that again. Yeah. Um, and so so I don't recommend that anymore. I, I have my team set really clear expectations. And when a new AE gets brought onto the team, one of the first things that they do is sit down with their SE and they say, Hey, this is how I work. 
what communication channels do you prefer? Here's how much notice I need for a demo. They sort of set those boundaries and then facilitate the relationship from there. I do think though, like they're the, the core of that, like the core takeaway though, whether it's in ops or, or as a solutions consultant is no matter what type of relationship you're trying to build, proving that some sort of value exists upfront buys yeah. you so much goodwill for later, right? So like to your yes. point about, you know, whether it's response time or the value, the, the way you're willing to go the extra mile on a particular deal, like, yeah, you can't do that. It's not sustainable. You're, you're going to burn out. But the relationship building you do up front, if you can add value to those first couple interactions and manage the perception that your AE or your team has of you, yeah. later on when you do need to actually have a reasonable amount of time to do something, it's okay, yeah. right? Like exactly. there's, not, there's not this moment of like, well, Josh doesn't know what he's doing. That's why this is taking so long. Like that moment doesn't exist. There's already that exactly. inherent trust. And I think like it's probably the exact same with SEs as it is in ops, which is, you know, we tell every new person who joins our team, like, I could care less if I have to teach you what filter goes on what report six months from now. Not a big yep. deal. We can teach you that. Yep. What we can't do is go back and reset the relationship or lack of relationship that you've built with XYZ sales rep, leader, manager, whatever, because yep. once those first few months pass, like that opportunity is has been missed. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's locked in stone. This is a horrible analogy, but it's like when you're first going on a date and you're just trying to figure out who the first person <laughs> is going to text after the date. I, I, I take the position of like, I'm going to text. I'm going to let that AE know that like, I love them to death. I'm going to do everything for them and that we should go on another date soon. Um, and I, but to your point, you're exactly right. Like you, you make that first step to say like, Hey, I'm here for you. I, I want to see you win as well. Uh, but there's going to be some some sort of um, you know stakes in the relationship that make sure that we work fluidly together. So it's mm -hmm. a it's a good give and take. And and the unfortunate side of it, and I see this all the time when I'm when I'm mentoring other SE leaders, is sometimes it doesn't work out. And then you have SE managers that are having to to shift which SE reports to which AE, and they couldn't figure it out themselves. And that turns into a whole other sticky mess. If you take nothing else from this episode, I think the salient lessons that Josh wants you to take away are. Always text first after a date and tell your AE you love them. But seriously, what any new team at a company must do is prove that that team's value. Show they're going to make the lives of those around them and the lives of their customers better. I mentioned earlier that we're going to come back to some of the specific ways that Josh created to measure his team's value. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to dig a little deeper. If you're starting a team like this, or you already have a team in place and you're looking for ways to articulate your value, it's okay to start simple. I know that that's what Josh and his team did because I was there when they did it. So where do you start? And you know this as my operations person, uh, it's living and breathing. We're still figuring out some of those Correct. things as we go. Um, but the, the, the honest answer was it started with, with you guys. It started with a team that was more analytical than me, which says a bunch being an SC, right? How smart you guys are basically saying like, Hey, you, you kind of need to get your ducks in a row. And so I, I was the one that ultimately figured out these are the three things that I think we're going to measure, but it was my partnership with the operations team that inspired, like, we need to go figure something out. So having a strong relationship there, like I said, in the beginning is super important. Um, but we didn't come out of the gates with a super mature model. 
Um, we started with, I think, where a lot of folks start in operations, which is like, let's just log everything, right? Like, we log everything, we'll eventually find the data. Um, and if I remember correctly, Sean, I, I think there was a, a point where, like, you were pulling things out of, like, Google Docs for us and building, like, pivot tables. And we were trying to, like, retroactively <laughs> assemble, like, all this sort of I've data. I blocked this from my brain. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, those are those are bad four-letter words uh, in, in ops when you start talking about your pivot tables and stuff. But um but we, we started by just saying like, hey, you know, everything that we do, we're going to tie it to an opportunity. So if we if we demo, we're going to put an event in Salesforce. If we prep, we're going to put an event in Salesforce. And and it started off not really not really knowing what we were going to use that data for. We just knew that we needed to populate this this big um, database of information. And as we've gotten more mature, we've realized what's actually important, and what's what's not. So the things that that we've matured is is figuring out like okay let's not just log events let's actually log the amount of time that those events are are taking which feels kind of natural we should have been doing that from the beginning um, and then you you start to look at if you start getting really sophisticated you can start to find patterns between the events that you're logging and the outcome of the the opportunity so one of the the, the game changing points for us is when your team added like the historic. Uh, opportunity information to say, hey, when we log this event, the opportunity was in discovery. And when we log this other event, it was in demo. And once we started building out this this chronological timeline of events tied to opportunity stages, we were able to really start getting sophisticated with, okay, for, for opportunities that we did join in discovery, our close rate went to, you know, 47% one. And if we, you know, didn't, it was at 37%. So you can get really sophisticated. Yeah. And I think the, the only other thing that I would add to that in terms of what you guys were able to do was it wasn't just your generic presence, right? We mm -hmm. started to identify that there were certain categories of inputs or certain categories of activities that you all were actually doing on these calls. And those yeah. within themselves had slightly different flavors. And I would imagine yep. similar to the big S, big E thing, right? Like there are probably people that were stronger or weaker at, at some of those different inputs. Um, one of the things that is, I think, a little bit of a cheat for, for you and I is like, we work at the company and use the yeah. product for the thing that we're selling, right? Um, yes. And so... It's more obvious, I think, if you're on the sales or marketing side, like, hey, yeah, we use Drift at Drift. But yeah. your team has also been able to, I think, leverage the product in, in a somewhat unique way. Can you talk a little bit about how you're leveraging it? Because it's, you know, it's one thing to just say, you know, eat your own dog food or whatever, but we're using it in ways that aren't necessarily our stated public value ads. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're exactly right. There are a couple of things that just kind of make sense when you think of drift. So when, you know, someone comes to the website and they're a target account and, you know, they're, they're in the solution validation phase of their opportunity, we'll get a notification that says like, Hey, go, go jump in and chat with them. Those are the kinds of the things that you would think that we sure. use drift for, which we absolutely do. The one that's been game changer for me is drift video. Um, and, and so for those of you that might not be familiar with it, just this ab ability to record asynchronous content, not unlike this too much, um, and then be able to share that with a prospect. And I think we've all experienced some sort of video being sent to us. But what's really cool about your video is this ability to be able to actually have a conversation with that person. And so a great example is when I have to sell, have to isn't the right word, when I sell to operations folks, right? And so one, guys are super busy. Uh, and, and two, 
usually we're talking about very technical things. So it's not just me saying, hey, the Salesforce integration is three clicks, you're going to love it. Operations people are like, no, everyone says that you're going to actually need to show me what you're talking about. And so instead of trying to figure out how can I go sit down for an hour with this really busy person, I can record a five minute video and say like, hey, I'm going to pull up a sandbox of Salesforce. I'm going to record it. I'm going to connect it. You said that you use these fields and these objects. Let me show you how I'm doing that so you can validate whether this is the right way to do it. And then at 11 o'clock at night, when you put the kids to bed, you can watch that video and then I'll get a notification and we can make sure that I answered those little questions for you. So um, it saves my team a bunch of time because we don't have to jump into meetings un unwillingly or when we don't have a bunch of time. But more importantly, I think it's a really good experience for the prospect of just, hey, when you get around yeah. to it, here's some content. Yeah. And I think, you know, to bring us full circle back to the beginning of our conversation, right, it aligns really well with this buyer centric customer journey that you were describing when you were basically saying that like the way people are buying is shifting and yeah. you don't have to necessarily have a separate call for every single one of these checklist items that someone wants to ask about. And you don't have to have a live demo for every single feature that you necessarily are purchasing, right? You can tailor both the sales process, but also like what the different medium of communication look like, I think, um, which is, I think, what you guys have been able to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and going back to your original point is, I think the reason that a solutions consultant or a sales engineer is is no longer just important for, you know, selling the technical parts of your product is the, is the trust part. And there's something that is, you know, inherently trustworthy about saying like, hey, I'm respecting your time. I'm also building you something that's you know super custom to your instance. I'm not just going to send you a, a help doc of our, our Salesforce how-to integration guide. Um, and I think that's what we're here for is to just really help customers make sure that you know they're validating the right solutions and that it's going to fit in their ecosystem. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months. Ooh, good one. I have I have a bunch. I have four sitting on my desk right now. I I just finished, and it probably is the best one that I've read in the last six months. The Making of a Manager by Julie okay. Zhu. Um, have you have you heard this one before? No. This one's really good. So so Julie Zhu was was one of the first um, product managers at Facebook, okay. and she got put into a manager role at a really young age. And so this is sort of like the chronicles of, of her kind of growing into this role from a young 20 something year old to, you know, a mature, you know, mid 30 year old manager. And one of my favorite things uh, that she documented are the different challenges that a manager will face depending on how you got into the manager role. So for example, me as an individual contributor that advanced my way into a management role has a totally different uh, set of problems. Like, you know, now we're reporting or my future, my past reports or my past colleagues now being my reports, those are the sort of problems that I face versus, you know, Nick Masters, who's on my team, who I hired him into manager role. He has a totally different set of problems where he's got, you know, immediate respect from his team, but they also, you know, he had to learn the product. He had to yeah. kind of earn some of that. So she did a great job kind of broadcasting awesome. that. That's a good one. Um, all right, next one. Normally I ask people their favorite part about working in ops. So I'll tweak it for you. Favorite part about sure. working in solution consulting. Oh man. Um, I, for me, it's about the balance. It's the ability to say like, hey, I, I get to 
to be excited about the technology and sort of um, make that part of my brain excited, but also being able to, to verbalize that and interact with our customers on a, on a daily basis. When you're engineering and you're just kind of putting out code, you don't really get to see it in the wild to see how that's solving problems. But as a solutions consultant, I get to build the solutions, I get to, to implement them, and then you get to see the actual results that your customers have, which is just really fulfilling. Flip side, least favorite part about working in solutions consulting. Oh my goodness. Probably the same. This is going to get me probably a lot of uh, bad LinkedIn messages. Maybe <laughs> the, the, the worst part about being an operations person too. Uh, the relationship that you build with, with sales is so important and, and, and oftentimes very tricky to navigate. Um, and so I, I think that can be um, very important to, to get right. And, and that's why going back to some of the things that we talked about earlier, just you know, setting forward really, really early that we're all here for the same reason. And if I ever disagree with you, it's, it's because I have good intent and I want to do it the right way. It can, it can be challenging, but also rewarding if you do it right. You can come back. We can do a whole another half hour on, on just that alone. Right. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today. Oof. Um, my dad was a big one. I know that's, that's I, I'll have to go back and listen to, to all of the different episodes. I'm sure everyone probably said that. No, um, no, that's a good one. Interesting. So, so my, I, I kind of swore that I was going to be nothing like my dad and I ended up being everything like my dad, which is probably a pretty common theme for a lot of folks. Um, my, my dad was, was in the air force and we moved around a bunch. And so I always told myself, like, I'm never going to join the air force. Like I hated that experience of having to move and never having the same friends. And lo and behold, I, I joined the air force and became an Intel analyst. And so, um, by being inspired to, to go into the air force and, and kind of cater to that technology side of, of my brain is the reason that I became an SE. Um, and my, my dad is kind of my number one cheerleader when it comes to my career and always giving me advice. So I uh, have a lot to thank him for. That's awesome. All right, last one for you. Uh, one piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Oh, interesting. Um, it, stay scrappy. As, as cheesy as that is, it goes back to, to what we were talking about a second ago, which is, you know, th think about sort of the your your self-respect and what you want to be known for but also think about you know how your end users in my case you know our actual customers but also our, our salespeople, the lens that they see you through um I, I i hope that i've got a personal brand of positivity and upbeatness and, and always trying to bring you know innovative ideas and so just constantly seek something that's broken and try to figure out how you can help your company fix it and i think you're going to be in a good spot Thanks so much to Josh for being this week's guest on operations. And thanks so much to Josh's team for all the work they do to make our sales team better. Really appreciate each and every one of you. If you liked what you heard today, make sure you are subscribed to our show so you get a new episode in your feed every other Friday. And if you feel like you took something away from today, let us know, leave us a review. Leave us a six star review on Apple Podcasts, six star reviews only. All right. That's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.